Let's begin then by looking at the expectation that we have in this section. Like the last section, we're going to look at this in three, or four actually, structures, four sections. We're going to look at the expectation first. Second, we're going to look at the process by which, through Christ, we can meet that expectation. Third, we're going to look at the promise, and promises actually, and there are some powerful promises in this section. I'm looking forward to actually showing this to you this morning. And then finally, we'll review what we've just gone over. So let's take a look at this expectation, is to obey Christ. Do you realize that any one of us can actually take a look at Christ and find in His Word what He expects? For example, our sitting here this morning gives evidence of the fact that we believe expectation of keeping the Seventh-day Sabbath. Also, diet, that's another, Um, the way we dress, our entertainment, things like this. But the bottom line is this, if I do not believe that my Heavenly Father cares for me, guess what my result is to Him? I don't care about Him. I mean, I can sugarcoat that with all kinds of words. Um, I love Him, but in reality, if I don't think that my Heavenly Father cares for me, I won't care for Him. But the reverse is just as true. If I truly am convinced that my Heavenly Father and His Son, Prince Charming Jesus Christ, really cares for me, and that actually the Prince of Darkness, the devil, does not, my heart is after Christ. And actually, that is the place that we're going to find the strength to obey God. So let's again begin with the expectation Two, two components here. Component or step number one is simply, I have to know what pleases Christ. And so the place that we go in the Bible is in Psalm 119.105. You have, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In other words, if I want to know what God expects as a Christian, this is my ultimate how-to book to know what He expects. Seventh-day Sabbath, tithe, Whatever happens to be his expectation, this is the place I find that. So now the second component is this. Or let me pause there for a moment. The, the, uh, the thought next would be, is this expectation simple and reasonable and doable? Certainly. And how many of us can actually keep the Sabbath day? All of us can. But that comes to this next question. Where does the strength come from? It certainly doesn't come from me, I can tell you that. But what you're going to actually find is that the verse that uh, Pascal read this morning, that we've read many, many times, actually hints at where the strength comes from. This is actually relatively new to me, and perhaps to you too. But I want us to take take a look at this process There is a gentleman, I don't know how many people have had the privilege of hearing Ravi Zacharias. That's spelled R-A-V-I, Ravi Zacharias. His title says it all, Let My People Think. And so what I'm hoping through the next several slides, we have 20 this morning, is actually help God's people, us, to think. So on this this promise, we have Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who does what? Strengthens me. But have you ever paused to ask yourself, 
where and how he strengthens me. I didn't know this until I started reading um, the uh, material uh, in, in the scriptures. And like, like the Bible says, the Holy Spirit will guide us. Take a look at this next verse on your screen. In Proverbs 24, verse 5, it says, A wise man is strong, yea, a man of what? Knowledge increases strength. So according to the scriptures, where does strength come from? It's knowledge. So if we tie these pieces together, where does my strength come from? It has to be knowledge of something or someone. Now watch this next verse. Those of you who love the book of Daniel, this should helpfully open up just not just um, visions of, of metals and, and, and dates, etc. This should begin to open up the very place where we should see it is in knowing God. Notice this. It says, Daniel chapter 11, verse 33, ties these three verses together by saying, the people that do what? Who know their God are what? Are strong and do exploits. Look at this picture here. Why is it that David is down there on the field of battle and his taller king, like we said last night, is not? It's because David knew his God and was down on the battlefield and won. And Saul was not. But what's specifically about God's character? Notice this, 2 Corinthians 4, 6. For God, who commended the light to shine out of the darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory. And God's glory is what? His character. When Moses said, show me your glory, God showed him not a big bank account, but his character, love, mercy, etc. So let's tie all these together now. Tying all these together, we see that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me through a knowledge of the character of my God. I don't know if you've ever seen that before. That's relatively new to me. I can know that the seventh day Sabbath is the one I'm supposed to keep, but outside of a knowledge of the character of God, I have no power to do it. Period. So now you understand why Christ says in John 17, 3, this is life eternal. Not just knowing a whole bunch of facts. It is to know you and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This is why we're counseled to spend a, it would be well to spend a thoughtful hour, not just ruminating over Seventh-day Sabbath, etc. It's knowing Christ, His character. That's the place the power comes from. Notice what 2 Peter 1 verses 2 through 4 says. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge, there it is again, of God and our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His what? Divine power. Do you see right there the connection between knowledge and power? Knowledge and power. Has given unto us all things that pertain unto this life and godliness through what? Knowledge of not just facts. It's a knowledge of Him. That's where our power comes from. When you are convinced that your Heavenly Father loves you, all of a sudden, power comes with it. For example... My wife and I have had our seventh anniversary, October 23, last month. And it's just incredible that you've you probably heard this before. Since you're, most of you are not married, it probably doesn't make much sense to you at this point. But your love will grow and your, your joy with your spouse will grow. as you. In other words, your love for your spouse will increase beyond your wedding day by a revelation of the character of who, she, who he or she is. And for me, there have been times the last two years, especially where I've started up a new business, just different wonderful re, um, uh, 
revelations of Monica's character for me have made my love for her deepen and through a knowledge of her love for me, my, my, um, my love for her has increased. So you've seen the connection between strength and knowledge of God's character tied biblically. I want to go now to the spirit of prophecy. And um, one gentleman asked if I give my testimony. I'll just briefly mention this. When I was at Little Creek Academy from 82 to 86, the, I came near the end of my first semester at Little Creek. And I have a rich heritage of people who walk with God. My mom and dad are here, and I appreciate that. Um, my mom's dad and mom love, God, love Christ. They're still alive, 93 and 90, and my dad's parents have passed away. But the point is, I went to a, uh, the forerunner of this school with a rich heritage, but near the end of my, uh, my first semester, I thought, I need to do what Joseph did when he was being taken off to Egypt. I need to make my father's God my God. And so I, I figured I need to get more into the Bible and more of the spirit of prophecy. And so I, I made a color code, three colors to underline the Bible, and they, they're also in the spirit of prophecy. I would spend the first part in the, of my devotion in the, the Bible and then the uh, second portion in the spirit of prophecy. And I say that all to say this, that in the last almost 30 years, I have read through the Bible at least 20 times. Different uh, translations, um, I would encourage you, read a wide variety because there are nuggets in each one of these translations that you won't see otherwise. And we'll, we'll, we'll touch on that here this morning, just one of those, those, those versions. Anyway, um, and so also I have read, after I've read, after I have two more to finish, Voice and Speech and Song in Volume 1 of Signs of the Times, I will have read... 65 books of Mrs. White cover to cover. Not a quotation here, a quotation there, and it all started back um, at, at Little Creek. But the point is this, that when you read God's Word and you read the spirit of prophecy, you become knit to the character of God in a way you could not have otherwise. And I encourage you, students, you have an opportunity now that perhaps you have not thought of since you're not in your future yet. Um, take time to know God in the Bible, in the spirit of prophecy. Read it. Don't let anyone uh, beguile you that either one of those sources is anything but what it is, inspired. And so what I do now when I share these thoughts, I want you to see that I try to, my practice is to show the Bible first, which we've just done, and then the spirit of prophecy. So let's take a look at the spirit of prophecy quotation next that ties this very thought in. This one is from My Life Today, and notice how Mrs. White has read this, has written this. My Life Today, 293. The knowledge of God as revealed in Christ is the knowledge that all who are saved must have. It. What's it? The knowledge, it is the knowledge that works the transformation of character. This knowledge, there's a key word, received, will recreate the soul in the image of God. It this knowledge will impart to the whole being a spiritual power that is divine. Do you see from inspiration the same harmony with the Bible? In other words, knowledge of God's character brings power. Absolute incredible power, and we'll see this in the promise section. Let's read another one. This one is from Christ Object Lessons 42. It says, The education to be secured, to be secured by searching the Scriptures is what? 
someone else's knowledge. It's an experimental knowledge of the plan of salvation. Such an education will restore the image of God in the soul. It will strengthen and fortify the mind against temptation and fit the learner. Um, I'm sorry, I forgot the rest part of that. My apology. But the point is that it's experimental knowledge. So let's take a look back at the scriptures. Here's David. And David was talking with his brother. And his brother basically is upset with him. But notice down here in verse 29, near the end, it says, David said, what have I now done? What's the last in red say? Is there not a cause? All right, so the first thing we need to obey Christ is know what he expects. The Bible here hints that David knew there was an expectation to go save Israel. All right, now, this is the part that says that. Patriarchs and Prophets 6.44. Take a look at this. This is incredible. When war was declared by Israel against the Philistines, three of the sons of Jesse joined the army under Saul. But David remained at home. After a time, however, he went to visit the camp of Saul. By his father's direction, he was to carry a message and gift to his elder brothers and to learn if they were still in safety and health. But notice this next part. What does it say? But unknown to Jesse, the youthful shepherd had been entrusted with a higher mission. The armies of Israel were in peril, and David had been directed by whom? An angel to save his people. I don't know if you've ever read that before, but it's interesting that he knew the expectation, go save the armies of Israel. Okay, so now he has that expectation. But where does the strength come from? I mean, here's this little picture little measly David against Goliath, how in the world is he going to translate that expectation into action without power? The verses that we've seen already tell us that it must be by a knowledge of the character of God. So watch this. 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 9. When he went to talk to Saul, his taller king, who should have been down on that, that battlefield, notice what David said. David girded his sword, in other words, Saul's sword and armor, and he essayed to go, for he had not proved it. And David said to Saul, I cannot go with these. Why? Because I have not proved them. There was nothing more sacred about a sling than armor. What was his reason why he said he could not do it? Because he hadn't proved it. If he had proved the armor and had been handed a sling, he would have done the same thing. The point is, he knows what God expects. Deliver Israel. But where is he going to get the power from? It's by knowing the character of God. Notice this next um, sentence. I'm going to begin here. 1 Samuel 17, 32 to 37. Now notice, he knows what he's supposed to do. Specifically, we've been told from the spirit of prophecy, an angel told him that he was going to deliver Israel. Now he needs power. And in this verse, he tells us where the power comes from. David said to Saul, Let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to him, You are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are what? You're a youth. Your youth doesn't matter. You still have power through the knowledge of God. Now notice this. He is a man of war. And David said to Saul, your servant has done what? Kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion 
and a bear and took the lamb out of the flock. I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Your servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be as one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, moreover, the Lord that delivered me out of the paw of the lion. Now you're hearing where his strength comes right here in this verse. The Lord who doesn't change, who's the same yesterday, today, forever. That Lord who delivered me out of the paw of the lion, out of the bear, yesterday will deliver me out of the, the hand of this Philistine today. Do you see the connection? Why was it that David and not Saul was down there? Because not only did he know he was to deliver, but he had a personal experiential knowledge that in the past, my God's character has proved faithful in that of the lion and the bear. Therefore, I can rely upon the Lord's character to give me strength to slay the expectation here, slay Goliath. Do you see the connection? We need to know what he expects and we need to have strength. And that strength comes from a knowledge of the character of God. If you want to obey the seventh-day Sabbath command fully, know God's character. There is the only place you're going to find strength to do what God asks. Here are two examples that I want us to take a look at, the connection between the knowledge and strength. The first one here that you should see is tithe, here's a church, and here's rent. Let's say that you all are Seventh-day Adventists. I'm new to this um, beautiful truth. You all have had the privilege of the, through the Holy Spirit to bring me to this beautiful truth of the Seventh-day Adventist uh, message. And just say Thursday you told me about tithe, and I thought, hmm, that's new. But you don't realize that this is a difficult time for you to tell me that. You've told me a new expectation I didn't know called 10% of my increase, my internal challenge that I have not re, re, uh, related to you is that come Monday we have rent due. Physically, humanly speaking, I cannot pay both. I can't pay tithe and rent, so what am I going to do? I go into the Sabbath hours. Someone is here, say, Loami is up here, and unbeknown to him, the Holy Spirit prompts him to say, tell a situation where you had a difficulty with tithe. And so he relates a, a story. I, uh, I didn't prompt him to tell this. And he says, there was a time when I could not pay tithe and my rent. And yet, I had walked enough with God to realize he'll take care of me. And I, took, I chose to do so. I trusted him. I paid the tithe first, trusting God to take care of the rent. And my Aunt Susie, I don't know if you have an Aunt Susie, but on illustration, you have liberty that you don't have otherwise. Um, my Aunt Susie sent me the money right on time after I made the commitment. What Laomi, Loami does not know is what has just happened in my mind. God has used Laomi to reveal the character of God. In my mind, that's the place we obey, according to the Scriptures. He's revealed a character of His faithfulness in Lomi's life so that I can now have the power to do what you have just shown me Thursday, a new expectation of God, 10% tithe. Do you see the connection between expectation, knowing the expectation, and the power coming from a knowledge of the character of God? You divorce those two, you have no power.
You will live through your life a hollow, feelingless existence. You might as well just go to the world. Get to know God, and there you will have your power. This next picture is the one General Wainwright. For those who love World War II, this is probably new. This is not new to you. Um, General MacArthur here was the five-star general of the Pacific Fleet. Eisenhower was of the European um, armies. But, uh, but um, here we have General MacArthur. And here next to him is this very thin General Wainwright. As far as I know, General Wainwright is the only U.S. general that was ever taken captive. Long story short, he and his men were taken captive. They were moved by the Japanese to China. And, of course, as concentration camps go, it wasn't pleasant. But here he was on the to-be-winning side, captive. Once we had finally won, some, some of, the, um, of the GIs came up to a fence where Elder, uh, uh, General Rain, Wainwright was and informed him, General, we have won the war. And you know what General Wainwright did? Without any hesitation, he marched into the Japanese commandant's quarters and said, I was just told by two of our GIs, we have won the war. The German commandant, uh, the Japanese commandant already knew that, but he obviously wasn't going to tell that to the people. Armed with that knowledge, General Wainwright went as a free person and talked to the, the uh, commandant and said, I'm taking over, and the J Japanese commandant gave him no resistance. Why? Because knowledge is Power, and more specifically, applied knowledge is power. Now I want to take us to Daniel chapter 11, and I want to show you something that is, in my mind, one of the most beautiful pictures of the, the sanctuary that I have ever seen. This is, again, rather relatively new. But you should be seeing two verses, uh, two translations on your screen, King James and New King James. Notice that of all the, the uh, titles that the sanctuary is given, Moses Sanctuary, there's another place, a palace, etc. Notice how Daniel, under inspiration, titled the sanctuary. Do you see it in red? In the King James Version, it says, And arms shall stand on his part, and they shall pollute what? The sanctuary of what? Strength. Well, if we tile these pieces together, we then see that the sanctuary of strength is a sanctuary of strength by revealing a correct knowledge of the character of God. That's where it gets the strength from. If you look in the New King James, notice in the red, how does the New King James translate that? Sanctuary fortress. I mean, this is incredible. Do you realize that when the British came against the colonies, what were they after? The people that had no power? No, they were after our fortress. If they, if they could take our fortress of power, whatever it happens to be, if it was intellectual power, if it was munitions, they were after that because they knew if they could take that fortress, they had our power. Do you see that this is the reason, and I finally understand more recently, this is the reason why every critic inside in the Seventh-day Adventist Church and outside the Seventh-day Adventist Church has sought to attack the sanctuary. It's not because they had a vendetta. Well, I don't like the pre-advent judgment. I don't like this. I don't like this. That may have been their reason. But do you realize the devil behind them was seeing the connection between knowledge of God and strength? 
This is called a sanctuary of strength. You put the pieces together. It is through a knowledge of the character of God that I have strength to do what he expects. That is what the sanctuary is about. It is a beautiful, clear picture of the character of the Father and the Son in the, car, in the courtyard, in the holy place, in the most holy place, saying, John 3.16, I love you in the courtyard. I love you in the holy place. I love you in the most holy place. It is that knowledge that the devil knows if I can squelch that, those persons have no power. No power. I, wonder what, I want you to read this with me on this next quotation. This one I can understand a little bit better having seen this from a perspective of a parent. If you, our daughter hasn't done this yet, not that she hasn't been disobedient, but she hasn't done this illustration yet. But I expect it will come. I would imagine that sometime in the future we will catch Melanie's hand in the cookie jar. Once she does that, she will realize there are consequences. And every one of us have had this experience. When we realize there are consequences, all of a sudden we start to say, okay, I'll do this, this, and this in order to avoid the consequence. That's the context of volume one of the Spirit of Prophecy, page 44. Adam and Eve have been told by Christ, you're going to be expelled from the Garden of Eden. And they're basically saying, oh, well, we'll just obey. But look at this quotation and notice how it ties in with our topic this morning. It says, they, Adam and Eve, promised that they would, in the future, yield to God implicit obedience. They were informed that in their fall from innocence to guilt, they would regain, they gained what? No strength, but what? Great weakness. They had not preserved their integrity while they were in a state of holy, happy innocence. There's that word again. And they would have what? Far less strength to remain true and loyal in what? A state of conscious guilt. Now reverse that. Reverse it. Since their strength was weakened by conscious guilt, what would happen if through Christ they came to the sanctuary of strength in the courtyard where the Father and the Son tell them, tell us what we saw this morning, I'm willing to forgive you. What if they come into that, 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 the sanctuary of strength in the courtyard realizing that my Father and Son are willing to give me um, innocence? So since the strength is weakened by conscious guilt, what happens to our strength if we have conscious innocence? Do you understand now why the devil seeks to keep from us a knowledge of the character of God? Since Adam and Eve would have had far less strength to remain loyal and true in a state of conscious guilt, how much strength would they have to remain loyal and true in conscious innocence. You are David. You have just committed an affair. You have lied and you've murdered to cover it up. And you know you are guilty, guilty, guilty and deserve to die. But what happens if your picture... I mean, this is one of the things... I'll just pause here for a moment. Do you realize that Prince of Darkness, the devil, is a fiend of fiends? He will come and dangle a carrot in front of you of temptation. I don't know what it is. For the girls, the guys, young, old, doesn't matter. He will dangle some carrot in front of you as if, oh, if you don't have this, you won't be happy. Because that other suitor over there, Christ, the Prince of, Dar- Prince of, of Light, he's withholding this from you. If you'll go my way, it's better. But what happens the moment you yield, you feel guilty, and where does he go? He goes up to the, the Heavenly Father and says, look at what your just child just did. 
He was your, mo- he was your friend in that moment, and next he's up in heaven saying, that person needs to die. That's not a friend. Since he knows that in the courtyard there is a picture of the character of God that says, Jimmy, David, you have sinned, but if you will accept my son's death, typified by the altar burnt offering, I will give you an exchange. You give me your garment of filthiness, I will give you innocence, and I now have the power through Christ, a conscious innocence to stand erect when I march out of that sanctuary. When the devil comes to me next and says, do you remember the last time it says, but God forgave me, I have power to do what he asks. Do you understand that the sanctuary is showing you and me the character of God from beginning to end? And I'll do this next slide. We'll see that just briefly. But read this quote. This is from volume one of the Signs of the Times. Christ tells us that we can find peace from the heaviest pressure of guilt and relief from the deepest condemnation. I don't know what you've done in your past. But when you are alone with you and the Holy Spirit, you know good well what you've done. And you can't hide it. And what God says is, I will forgive you. That's incredible. I don't know how heavy your pressure of guilt is today, but God says, if you will give it to me, typified by my sanctuary in which I will exchange your guilt garment for my innocent garment, I will forgive you. You will walk out of here a changed person. Watch this. Um, Take a look at the sanctuary of strength. Courtyard in which we're basically pardoned. In the holy place, our Our character is reconstructed like we saw last night. It's not just a fuzzy, good Christ-likeness. It's specifically raise your sharp expectation. Christ at the Lord's Supper served others and submitted to God. That's his expectation. That is what he's doing in this most holy place. And then he inspects right here. Notice, courtyard, he pardons. In the holy place, location and timing, most holy place, ancient days, son of man. Again, we should expect now that a character of God should be coming forth out of each one of those parts. We've already discussed this, pardon. What about holy place, most holy place? Briefly, um, when I was at McKee Foods Corporation, I had taken a seminar on... Um, criticism, constructive criticism. So I can just ask you the same question the presenter asked me. Do you like to be constructively criticized? I don't. It's not fun. Well, let's reverse it. What happens on the other side? Do you enjoy criticizing your best friend? No. So both ways, receiving or giving, it's not a comfortable task, but yet we have to admit there are times when we need to be constructively criticized, and there are times when we need to criticize. But the presenter was saying something that I put here. Location and timing make a big difference. Okay, let's bring this into application here. Do you see the sanctuary in the, mo- excuse me, in the holy place, that candle of uh, the seven-branch seven candlestick? If we look in Revelation 2 and 3, we see our high priest who loved us and pardoned us in the courtyard. He is saying, Jimmy, here's this and this and this, but this has to go. Let's think about this. There was about a mile between the tents there and this 
this uh, sanctuary. So let's say that all of our tents were right there. You saw my get up this morning, take my little lamb, heading for the sanctuary of strength, and you know, I don't know what he's done, but he's done something that needs forgiveness. But once I'm inside here, guess where the location is? Christ waits until I am right in here into the most, excuse me, the holy place where he begins to reveal in the privacy of one-on-one, Jimmy, this needs to go. That's incredible. If it were the devil, what would he do? He'd take every opportunity, CNN, um, every news network, check, check out what Jimmy has done. That's not the character of my heavenly father. Since he loves me, he is maintaining my dignity and he takes me into the privacy here of one-on-one and says, Jimmy, this needs to go. Then the timing, he accepts me in the courtyard as I am, and then he moves into here in the holy place to begin the reconstructing process. Timing and location. Also, the Ancient of Days and Son of Man, this is awesome too, Ancient of Days. I've done a study, there are about 400 names of the the, uh, the Heavenly Father in the Old and New Testament and about the same for Christ. And yet John, when he wrote this about the Ancient of Days and Son of Man in Daniel chapter 7, 9, and 10, 13, and 14, he in the sanctuary, in the most holy place, in the pre-advent judgment, also known as the investigative judgment, he uses not the word Savior or Shepherd for Christ or Yahweh for the Father, but Ancient of Days and Son of Man. And there's, there's a good reason. And it is this. Ancient of days, to make this short, ancient of days means he's eternal. Relative to knowledge, he knows everything except one thing. He doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. And so in the pre-advent judgment, say this is my book, my name is in here. If God's character were selfish like the devil accuses him, he would say, Jimmy, I don't know what it's like to be tempted. I don't really care. I wouldn't yield you shouldn't throw the book at you. No, his title, not just Yahweh, but Ancient of Days, tells us that he knows everything except one thing. He doesn't know what it's like to be tempted. So because at heart he loves me, he says, Jimmy, I'm going to pass this book not just to your Savior, not just to the shepherd, but to the Son of Man, one who has walked the dusty path, who's been tempted like, in all points like as you are, yet without sin. The titles say, in the most holy place, I love you. There's no change. What has changed? Courtyard to the holy place, same God, same love, same son, same mercy, same justice. No change. It's the character of God that we need to see all the way through. Now I want us to take a look at this promises section. It is absolutely tremendous. Absolutely tremendous. Take a look at this one. We, we saw this as our scripture this morning. I can do half of the things that God asks. Is that what it says? I can do the diet thing, but I can't do the seventh day thing. Is that what it says? I can do all things through Christ. How about Old Testament? Caleb and Joshua. Here, this big clump of grapes. I don't know if you've ever had that much. I don't know if Mrs. Nimick, um has had a, a, a cluster of grapes this size in her, um, in her uh, kitchen. Notice what... Caleb and Joshua, knowing the character of God, said, Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are what? We are well able to overcome it. Now you've seen this from the Bible, okay? We can do all things. Look at the next two quotations. This is incredible. Youth instructor, I would very much encourage you, each one of you reading this book all the way through. It's incredible. Notice what it says. 
When the human will cooperates with the will of God, it becomes what? Omnipotent. That's why David could slay the Goliath. That's why the Caleb could say, we can go into Canaan. Now, if that weren't, uh, uh, if that weren't enough, take a look at this next slide. This is incredible. Upward look. The Lord declares that the gates of hell shall not prevail against them. His church. Every sincere member of the church may include himself in these promises and say, I am the Lord's in his strength. What? I'm invincible. This is incredible. When you and I get to know the character of our God, there is no Goliath too big. There is no Canaan too large. There is no Potiphar's wife too enticing for us to stand up and say, here is God's expectation. Do not commit adultery. And by knowing his character of faithfulness, I love him even if it means my death. You won't die for the seventh-day Sabbath unless you have a knowledge and love for the character of God. You have to have those two together. Now, how does this work? Again, let's take a look at Christ, our example. Without God, Christ could do nothing in those verses. Without Christ, we could do nothing. Our example in His humanity knew exactly what we went through. With God, Christ could do all things, Acts 10, 38. With Christ, we can do all things, Philippians 4, 13. Notice, empowered by God, Christ did the doing in, Christ, in the Father's strength. Strengthened by Christ, we can do the doing in His strength. Again, do you begin to see we have two components. We need to know what He expects, and then we need to know His character by which we will have this strength. All right, the last four slides deal with this from an English standpoint. I don't know how many people actually enjoy English. I did it. I definitely enjoy. We had two excellent teachers, Mrs. Morgan and Fred Smith. Some of you may know her and them. Some of you do not. But just as an academic, this is an academic setting, we're going to look at strength with God through English. So for those of you who like that, you'll like these next three slides. A clause is a sentence with a subject and verb. An independent clause is a sentence that has a, sen a subject and verb, but it needs something else to complete it. So let's take a look at an example. I went to town. Now that may not satisfy the curious bug in us to find out more information, but it is a complete sentence. I went to town. Subject is I, verb is went. But what happens when we put the little word when there? When I went to town, it still has the word I, it still has the word went, but now what happened? With the word when, it's now dependent on some other sentence to complete it. Subject, verb, when makes the sentence dependent. In the spiritual sense, when is sin. That is, when we sinned in Genesis 3, we became dependent upon someone else to make the sentence, quote-unquote, of our lives complete. Without him, we can do nothing, John 15, 5. But do you realize that that sentence is a dependent clause needing one other sentence to make it complete? Watch this. Here we go with practical theology applied in English to dependent clauses. The dependent clause is John 15, 5. Without Christ, we can do nothing, and that should be a comma and not a period. 
Do you see that? Because our scripture this morning tells us that the rest completes this thought. Does this verse say that we can do nothing? No, it says that without Christ we can do nothing. So we need the completion of that sentence. The independent clause is Philippians 4.13. With Christ I can do all things. Now John 15.5 is complete. Do you see it? Without Christ I can do nothing, comma, but with Christ I can do all things by knowing the character of my God. So in summary, let's take a look at this again, just to cap up what we've done this morning. We've begun with the expectation to obey Christ. What's the process? First, I need to behold Christ to see in His Word what He wants. Seventh-day Sabbath, attire, whatever. Then I need to know Him, know God. There's my strength. And the promise, we can do all things through Christ. Hopefully this morning, Philippians 4.13 and Christ's character have stepped forward in a marriage so that you know what God expects and have seen more of God's character that will give you the power to obey. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.